Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. So I don't, I don't know about in your life, but in my life, and, and really in 2023, this kind of became clear for me. There are dominoes in my life that as they tip and fall to each other, it kind of creates positive motion. We're going to have several story times with Brent today, so camera people are just going to have to follow with me here for just a second. But when I was a kid, my grandparents were, um, they were young grandparents. I'm the baby of the Kellogg grandkids. There's five grandkids, and I remember my grandfather's 50th birthday, okay? Like I was four or five years old. I'll be 50 next year. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just, they, they were young, had energy, they had campers, they bought a fifth wheel, and then they bought motorhomes. When they got the motorhome twice, they loaded up all five of us grandkids and went to California. We were gone like three and a half weeks. Like, I'm going to love my grandkids. I ain't going to love them that much. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, kids these days are too spoiled anyway. Can I? No, I don't, I don't even say that. So, but like we would go to the lake and go camping and, and do that. And before there were video games and cell phones and apps and all that type of stuff, we kids actually just played, <laughs> you know, like in the dirt. Why do you think we're healthy, right? Because we ate worms back. No, we didn't do that. But one of the things, my grandparents loved to play dominoes because it involved math. I was kind of out, right? But um, I, when, they, when all the big people were done playing dominoes, I would always get the dominoes and I would make little domino trails out of them. I don't know, anybody ever do that? All the mature people in the room here, right? And so it's kind of cool because you said now they have little cars that just set them up and do it for you. But the part was like you would do this and then your dominoes, you know, one would kind of tip over and you would lose five minutes of work and you'd learn all the words your dad had taught you, you know, <laughs> just kind of use them there. But we would set these dominoes and like to get to be the person that got to push the first domino over, that was pretty cool because literally sometimes you would spend 30, 40, 50 minutes creating this domino trail and then you got to go, that was awesome, right? And you know that if, if you've ever seen the, the people do it really big, they would do a set of dominoes and then they would take one out so that if this section did fall, it wouldn't do the whole thing, right? And so that's the idea behind it. That's fun. That was fun as a kid to get dominoes out and build this thing. And what now, like you can, when we're back on social media, you can go see, see incredible people build all these things and so forth out of, out of dominoes. I have dominoes in my life that when one tips, it, it starts motion for the next domino, for the next domino, and for the next domino. New year, new us, right? New year, new me. And we're gonna talk about some of these dominoes. We're gonna call them dominoes for the next few weeks, but the reality is they're spiritual disciplines. They're things that God's word gave us that if we would incorporate these in our life, if we would do what the Bible tells us to do, that domino is gonna tip the next domino, which is gonna create momentum and success. It's fun. So that's, that's kind of what we're, where we're at today, just starting this series called Dominoes. Before I do that, I wanna, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll land there, but I want to put a verse up on the screen from Psalm 23. And um, it's used, it's a very famous verse from the Bible. It's used in a lot of common different settings, like artwork. I, when I read this, you're going to recognize it. Like, I could stop halfway through, and many of you could finish the verse. Okay, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it out of an older translation, more famously recognizable, if you will, out of the King James. So Psalm 23, verse one, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. Okay? So I stand here today, I believe with a word in my heart from the Lord for you today, with heavy conviction to, to preach the word. Okay? And that good Christians, good believers, faithful men and women of God would send their kids to OSU because it is in still water. Right? Like good and faithful men and women of God would, would send their grandkids. They would all become Oklahoma State University fans. Right? Can I get an amen? Okay. So for some of you, that's hilarious. Right? Amen! You know, there are good Christian people that find that hilarious. Right? Some of you are angry right now. You know who you are. I know who you are. I mean, you would not believe, no, you'd probably believe the hate that has been vented towards me down through the years, that, that verses like this or comments like this is part. So we laugh at that, right? Some of you even considered leaving. It's fine. You know what I just said is a far stretch of the imagination, okay? I took a very famous verse from the Bible. I used this phrase, he leads me beside still water, and I made a ridiculous theological claim. I use the good word of God to produce bad theology. Well, I wouldn't say bad theology, just incorrect theology, right? Okay. The reason we're laughing about that, the reason some of you considered leaving, is because you know the truth. You know the reality. You have a Bible. You have read the Bible. You have access to a Bible. At some point, you've read Psalm 23. And while the Bible may say those words, he leads me beside still water, you know good and well for yourself. That is not what David was saying when he penned that poem that's become Psalm 23. So today, I'm, I'm going to do what my wife does with me when we have a discussion I'm going to get historical. <laughs> I'm sorry. Some of you will get that later. That was good. One of us. That's like, my man. Um, a, lot of, a lot of history mixed in here today because there's some context I want you to understand. So I'm going to jump at a couple of different places in, in the timeline of history. And I want, to, I want to jump to colonial America in 1635. If I could take you to Boston, Massachusetts, to what was formed as the Boston Latin school. Now, it wasn't the first of its kind. It was actually modeled after a school in England, ironically, in Boston, England, called the Free um, School. And it's in, in, in Boston, Massachusetts, 1635. This was the infancy of public education, okay? Now, then it was colonial America. Now, I mean, obviously, we're the United States of America, but some of Boston Latin's school's most well-known alumni include the likes of John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin attended there. He just dropped out, right? You and I today, here we are in 2024, we have the benefit of living in a time in a place where an education system, meaning that people have access to the ability to read, write, and learn themselves. In America, that began in Boston in 1635, and it's grown to be the education system that we have all across the United States and in really most parts of the world. Now, if I can take you to Europe in the 1200s and in early 1300s, in that day and time, there was no free education. Education was a privilege, right? You had to be of a certain class. You had to sip your tea with your pinky extended, 
All right? You had to have means in order to have access to education. And if you stop and think about that just for a second, you're going to realize that's going to create a social, social system of the haves who can be educated and the have-nots who could not afford to be educated. So the rich would stay rich and the poor would stay poor. If I have access to education, my chances of succeeding are good. If I do not have access to education, the chance of changing my stars are very slim. Something's going to have to happen. So in the 1200s in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church yielded great authority. It yielded great spiritual authority, but it also yielded great political authority. Everyone, including kings, were subject to the decrees, the decisions, and even the wars of the Catholic will. The Pope, who was the head of the Catholic Church, was by far the most powerful man in the world. He had the ability to summons kings and they would respond. He had the ability to dethrone kings and so it would be. Roughly at one point, about 600 AD, the Catholics got tired of the Middle East where the Holy Land is, Jerusalem. They get tired of that being dominated by the Muslims. And so they set out on crusades to evangelize the Holy Land. I mean, their heart was somewhat good. Their intent was good because they wanted to take the name of Jesus to those places that did not know Jesus and they rejected the thought of Jesus. But their means and their tactics were bad. It was kind of evangelism by force and by war. And so you start this series, if you will, of crusades. The Ninth Crusade, if I could keep along this timeline of history. In 1271, it was the Ninth Crusade to go and evangelize through war and torture and terror the Middle East or the Muslim states. The Ninth Crusade did not go well. Thousands were massacred on both sides. It was not, it was not successful. The medieval world of, of Europe and, and even as it's recent to northern Africa and in the Middle East, it was a cruel place of fear, of death, of torture, of tyrannical excess of both spiritual and political power. The kings held power, but the church held even greater power. And born into this medieval world was a boy by the name of John. 1320, he was one of the lucky ones because he was born into a family of means that sipped their tea with their pinky extended, right? His family had the opportunity to afford him an education. And so he would go on, continue his studies at Oxford, very famous university in, in Europe. He learned both Latin and Greek. Then he learned how to read Latin and Greek, which was the primary languages of the biblical texts of the day, so he could read the Bible. And he would go to church and he would listen to this priest or this bishop or this teacher and he would hear them talk and he would hear them teach and they were reinforcing the practices and policies of the Catholic Church. And then, because he was educated, because he came from a family of means, because he could learn how to read Latin and Greek, he would hear them talk, and then he would go back and he would get out his own Latin version of the Bible, and he would read it, and he would go, well, that's, that's not what that says. He found conflict between the teaching of the Catholic Church and what the Scriptures were saying. I'll give you an example, probably a more famous example, one referred to as indulgences. Okay? And I'm, I'm not an expert in any way, shape, form, or fashion on on Catholicism or what have you, but there was this 
Church practice then of indulgences. Wikipedia defines indulgences of the recipient of an indulgence, like I'm, I'm going to receive that grace, if you will, must perform actions to get that grace. This is most often by saying a prayer once or multiple, multiple times. It, an indulgence could be going on a pilgrimage, like to the Holy Land, or visiting a specific place, like a shrine or a church or, or a cemetery, or the performance of a specific good work, indulgences. So the Catholic Church realized, hey, out of, let's tell you what, out of convenience, maybe you don't have time, or maybe your kids are too small, or maybe you don't feel safe to take a pilgrimage to the, to the Holy Land. There is a specific good work you could do. I mean, if you felt compelled, you could give an offering if you wanted to, and you could buy that indulgence of grace. Or this idea of, of purgatory, right? Oh, so your father passed away. He's not in heaven, but he's not in hell. He's kind of stuck in purgatory. So, uh, I mean, if, you're, if you wanted to set your father free, if you wanted to set your, your, your brother or whoever if, if, if stuck in purgatory, if you wanted to set them free, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if you wanted to, I suppose an, a nice little generous offering of indulgence would set them free from purgatory in the eyes of God. Now, let me be clear. Long since, they have long since banned some of these practices in the Catholic Church. But you would have priests and teachers and bishops standing before basically an uneducated crowd. More than anything, they were an English-speaking crowd. And they would get up and they would read from the Holy Scriptures, that my father beat your father in dominoes. And they were reading Latin. That the people there are like, I don't even know. Do we amen here? I don't know. It's kind of like when you're singing a song you don't know the words to. You just kind of fake it. You know, I don't. And so you have, you have priests that are, that are reading the Bible to people that cannot understand what the words there are. They have no ability to read those words for themselves. They have no ability to understand what it means by themselves. They were solely dependent upon the church and the teachings of the church. And it created massive space for manipulation, abuse, and financial gain for the church. And then you had good people who came upon the scene, like young John, who had the means to be educated, and he learned how to read Latin, and he learned how to read Greek, and he would read his Latin version of the Bible, and then he would go sit in church, and they would talk about indulgences, the practice of the Catholic Church, and he found this conflict that was from being taught from what the Bible actually said. 150 years later, a guy by the name of Martin Luther would eventually pick up the same theme and he would give rise to what we celebrate as the Protestant Reformation. You have a very powerful Catholic church. And on top of that, you've had a very ugly, unsuccessful crusade. I'm going to stick in the middle of that. All of this that's going on in medieval Europe, in 1346, you had a plague ravaged through Europe and Northern Africa, known famously as the Black Death, not to be confused with the metal band from the 80s, right? This was like COVID 1.0. I mean, it was just this virus that, you know, it was transmitted by fleas on rats, and then eventually those fleas would bite humans, and then eventually it, the, the virus more so much so that it became airborne, we're not really sure because obviously medical records of the 1300s weren't that great, but we estimate that between 40 and 60% of Europe's population 
died. Imagine if we woke up and half of the American population was killed in a virus. They say that could have been numbers nearly as high as 50 million people were impacted by the Black Death. No one was safe. And the church was absolutely powerless to stop it, no matter what they prayed, no matter what practices, no matter what indulgences, the, the, the church was absolutely powerless to stop the black death. Bishops, priests, nuns, deacons, they were all impacted by this plague. So it caused a great questioning. Well, listen, if the church, if the church has no power to stop this, it kind of shook things up a little bit. And so for many, the Black Death was seen as a form of God's judgment and God's punishment because of the Crusades. And so those who were fortunate enough to survive it, if you were in the 50% that survived, number one, you had a catastrophic, a devastating event that you had to rebuild and recover from on top of the grief because you lost someone that you love. And then secondly, those who did survive carried massive survivor's guilt. Massive survivor's guilt. And that's accompanied with, why me, God? Why did my spouse have to die? Why did my kid have to die? Why did my neighbor have to die? Why did you spare me? God, why did you spare me? And that sparked somewhat of a spiritual revival of sorts. People were desperate to get to know more about God. Number one, out of a heart of gratitude. Listen, I don't know why you chose me. But God, thank you. Thank you that I still have life when my neighbor and his whole family, they died. So out of this heart of gratitude, it sparked a revival. But also there has to be a purpose in this. Why did God let me survive this pandemic? Well, the problem was the only way that you could learn more about God, the only way you could satisfy that thirst and that hunger of knowing more about him and his purpose for your life and why he let you survive, the only way you could learn was to go to church and listen to a Catholic priest teach you the Bible. And John became convinced that the word of God was necessary for all men, all women, all children, not just priests alone quoted as saying the holy scriptures are the supreme law there is none better that supreme law is to rule the church it's to rule the state it's also to rule our lives as christians and it's to rule free from human tradition or statutes like i just need god's word god's pure word to speak to me not necessarily your interpretation not necessarily what's going to fit and fit the church i just need the pure supreme law of god's word to guide my life my state and my church somebody ought to give a good amen he became convinced john became convinced that people could not know the basics of faith unless they know the bible and the best way they could know the Bible was to have it translated into a language that they could read and understand. So, 1361, he's now a college professor. He's actually the master of Leo College. Knowing the only way for people to know more about God, to know more about the Bible, is to translate it from Latin into the language of their day, which would have been 1300-ish English, which, by the way, looks nothing like our English. <laughs> I'm just telling you. So in 1361, the work of John Wycliffe began. It took him and his team of 23 scholars 
It took them 23 years to complete this Bible. John himself would, would translate the works of, he would translate the gospels of Jesus because he wanted to be so accurate with how we handled the words that Jesus spoke himself. John would die of a stroke in 1384. And you can imagine this was not a popular idea among the Catholic, all-powerful, political, and spiritual church. The idea of common people having a Bible that they can read for themselves and understand for themselves, John was labeled as a heretic. John would actually be called the Antichrist of his day. It began this all-out full attack on the, from the Catholic Church on him and his followers. 17 years after he died, there would be a Catholic Church statute that mandated persecution for anyone that was a follower of John Wycliffe. It mandated destruction of all of his writings that could be found. 30 years after he died, a whole church council would meet about him, and they decreed that all of his works should be burned as well as his dead corpse. In 1428, Pope Martin V was so enraged of all this that he would actually have John's body dug up and burned with many of the writings that they could find. So I stand here today, and I tell you, based upon Psalm 23 and the Word of God, I tell you that all good followers of Christ should be fans and donors to Oklahoma State University. If that would have been said in the 1200s, you would have had no idea whether it was right, wrong, or indifferent. We laugh at that. That because of the work of John Wycliffe, deeply convicted that every man, woman, and child has a right, even a responsibility to read, to study, to learn the word of God for yourself. And so we land at Hebrews chapter four. It's one of the, it's a short chapter, but it's deeply theological. We, we get some of the theology about Jesus and who he was and, and how he's, our, he's now our priest. He's our intercessor. But then we also get some deep understanding about the word of God, about the Bible. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. It said, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost, innermost thoughts and desires. That, that is so beautiful. That is so powerful. That's almost Poetic. What does it mean? It says the word of God's living. Like, does it have a heartbeat? It says that it's powerful. Like, if I set it on fire, is it going to explode like dynamite? What does that mean? There's three major thoughts in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 that I want us to kind of quickly unpack this morning. Number one, the word of God is living. It's living. And what does that mean? When the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter, there was no Bible. There were Old Testament books. There were the writings and the, and, and the rolls and scrolls of the prophets. But, but there was no collection of letters and books and, and history. There, there, there was no Bible. There was no collection of Paul's letters. There were no collection of, of the ministries of Jesus called the Gospels. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is when God speaks, the word of God, when the words pass over God's mouth, over his lips, when those words flow from God, those words are alive. They're living. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and it was living. There was light. So the Greek word 
that's used there is zao, Z-A-O, is living. Okay? It's, that word is used 143 different times in the New Testament. It's translated a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's translated living, sometimes it's translated powerful, sometimes it's translated vital, sometimes it's translated as active. The point of this is, is God's words don't fall dead. God's word, when he speaks, they are active, they're powerful, they're living, they're working. And in the Bible, the collection of, of, of all these letters and, and history books, that is the inspired work of of God. That's the inspired word of God. Meaning, the writers of the Bible, those that contributed to this collection of books that we have, Moses, David, Isaiah, Solomon, Jeremiah, Luke, Paul, John, all of those that would write these things, when they were writing their book, when they were writing their poem, when they were writing their history, the Holy Spirit of God anointed them, the Holy Spirit of God ordained them, he was by inspiring them, and he was telling them the words that they were to write. So we have the inspired words of God written at the hands of men. So we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. When David was writing that, it was the Holy Spirit prompting him what to say. When Paul was writing those letters, it was the Holy Spirit prompting him what to say. We have the words of God that are inspired by God written at the hands of men. If that makes sense, say Amen. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes things get lost in translation, which, which is why sometimes I'll take a word like living, zeo, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen and show you. Listen, you can translate this word a lot of different ways. That's why, because sometimes things get lost in translation. And I discovered this firsthand, upfront, and personal in 2005. I went on my first international mission trip to Llano Grande, Nicaragua. There was a, a small team of us that joined with Morphers Baptist Church, and, and we went to Llano Grande in literally one of the most powerful weeks of my life. My job on the team was to be a part of the preaching team. And so what we'd do, literally, we would, we would see about 200 people at a time. We, would, we were going to let them see a doctor or a nurse. We were going to try to give them some uh, food. We were trying to give them shoes, dental care if they needed it as best we could. But before they ever got access to all that, we would bring them into this big tent and we would give them instruction about how this is all going to work and how long it's going to take and everything we're going to give them. But before we let you go, we're going to preach the gospel to you. Well, that's my job. My job was to get up and evangelize 200 people and we spoke different languages. I barely speak English, Right? And they spoke Spanish, so we would have to use a translator. And so I was 31 years old. I'd never done anything like this before. I did take two semesters of Espanol at University Dad. So when I was at Oklahoma State, so now I'm illiterate in not one but two languages. Okay. And so my first time to preach, I wanted to get up. And I, you know, I knew it was going, so I prepared. And I wanted to, I wanted to try to speak a little bit of Spanish, try to create some commonality, you know. Hey, he's, you know, he, he's trying to speak our language, isn't that? It's not cute. It was really dumb, actually. So I get up there, and I'm like, hola. I mean, there's nothing like a redneck trying to speak Spanish. It's just, uh, como esta? You know, me lamo es Brent. Yo vivas in Oklahoma. You know? And then I tried to say, I would like to thank my friend Omar for helping me translate. 
And that's a picture of me and Omar up on the screen. Omar, you can see, you know, great guy. I tried to say, I want to thank my friend Omar for, I, I was trying to use my bad English, my bad Spanish. I want to thank my friend Omar for helping me translate. But what I actually said, I want to thank my friend lover. The laughter in the tent was so loud, they didn't hear anything else I said. You know what I'm saying? Down through the years, Omar is an incredible man of God. Built a great relationship with him. After my second day of preaching, and, and we spent a lot of time with our team. He, he worked with our team specifically, and, and Omar and I were just sitting there, you know, kind of talking. And if you know Omar, he's just a gentle giant of a man. He didn't want to hurt my feelings in any way, shape, form, or fashion. He didn't. But... Um, Okay, okay, um, it's uh, your message, this message of power. Like, I, I can tell you preaching is good, but your stories are bad. <laughs> like, your stories not work. <laughs> like, what? He's like, you, you can't talk about owning a car to people that don't know what it means to own a car. Things get lost in translation. Like he was having to take broken redneck English and filter it through Spanish. And, and, and literally, I would say like four words and he would say 20. And I'm like, Omar, I didn't say that much. He goes, no, but I got to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Things get lost in translation. The biblical common example, I, I use this all the time. There are four words in Greek that mean love. Love. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Can I tell you, that is a different kind of love than, I sure love you, baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like me loving my buddy and me loving my wife are two different kinds of love. The Greek has four words in the Bible that we use to define love. In English, we just use one. And so sometimes things get lost in translation. The Old Testament, predominantly written in Hebrew. The New Testament, predominantly written in Greek. Then they were translated to Latin, and that's what the Catholic Church was using. And then from Latin, it got translated into English. Sometimes things get lost in translation, but the point remains the same. The words of God that he inspired, the men that wrote the Bible, it is the inspired word of God. It is active, it is powerful, it is living, and it is efficient in our lives. Can I get an amen? The word of God is living and powerful and sharper, a two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit. The second thing I want you to see, the word of God is powerful. I'll give you another Greek word. In air days, okay? Uh, you can look at that and clearly go, well, that's where we get the word energy from. Like, that looks just like energy, yeah. It's easy to translate because it's only used three times in the New Testament. Twice, it's translated effective. Once, it's translated powerful. When God speaks, it's powerful. Isaiah 55, 11 would say it this, God speaking through his prophet Isaiah it is the same with my word. It's the same with God's word. When he sends it out, it always produces fruit. It will always accomplish all that he wants it to, and it will prosper everywhere he sends it. The word of God is powerful and effective. It does a great work in my heart. It does a great work in my spirit, in my life, in my future, in my destiny. God's words are powerful in air games. And sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. So it's living, it's powerful, and it's sharp. You could also use the word precise, like a surgical scalpel. 
I don't know if you've ever had to go into surgery, but like you praying that your surgeon has steady hands. No, we're just going to work on your heart today. It's fine. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, Lord, give that surgeon steady hand. It, it, that's what he's saying about the word of God. It is so precise and with precision, and it's sharp like a surgeon's scalpel. Yes, it's living. Yes, it's powerful. But it knows exactly when, where, how, what to speak to you when you need it most. Let, let's just say you, you had going through a bad day. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's happened to me more times than I could count. You're going through a tough season. feels like everyone is mad at you. Like the dog won't even look at you. Come here, buddy. I was like, mm-mm. Your boss just chewed you out for no reason. Then you hear people, you, people are, oh, you know what so-and-so said about you. People are gossiping about you. And then you open up the Bible and you're having a rough season or a bad day. And the word of God is sharp like a surgeon's scalpel. And it says this, my enemies, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes up. You can call your boss whatever you want to, right? They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. People talking about me, making fun of me behind my back. Oh, Lord, do not stay far away. God, you are my strength. Would you come quickly to my aid? Save me from the sword. Spare my life from these dogs. Like it cuts right to the heart of your issue, your need, your pain, what you're going through. It is sharp with surgical accuracy. And it says this, it says that it's cutting between soul and spirit. And, and there's a lot there I don't have to, I could literally do a whole message on soul and spirit and what's going on there. But I want to give you my best version of that right here. The word of God can help you discern what's me and my thoughts and what's the spirit of God trying to say to me. I don't know if you've ever had this, but like an idea comes out and it feels good and you're kind of energized to do it. Like you're not smart enough to think of that anyway. And so now I have to go, okay, is that me is that my voice? Is that my internal dialogue? Or is that the Spirit of God trying to speak to me? And the Word of God is sharp, and it helps you discern what is your voice and your thoughts and what is the Spirit of God trying to speak to you. If that makes sense, say amen. The Word of God is living, accurate, powerful. It helps me cut from what's my flesh and what is the voice of God speaking to my spirit. Why not? Why wouldn't you want the first domino of this year, the first domino of every day, the first domino to build your life upon? Why wouldn't you want that to be the foundation of God's word? Why wouldn't you want to start your day with the living, effective, powerful word of God. Why wouldn't you want to build your family, build your marriage on this domino of the effective, powerful word of God that'll speak right to whatever your issue? Why wouldn't you base your parenting structure and system and your home on the powerful word of God? What if, what if this was the year that we made it a priority? On the back side of your handout we gave you and you came in, I'm just going to give you some practical things that the Word of God is in your life. It's not all. It's not a complete. It's not a conclusive list. But it's some things that in the next 30 days, these things can be applied in your life. First and foremost, number one, the Word of God, God's Word has healing power. Psalm 107 verse 20, it says, He sent out His Word and it healed them. That's the Bible. That's not the BKV. That's the Bible. God's word 
cleanses us. John 15, 3, Ephesians 5, 26. Listen, if I do what God's word tells me to do, if I heed its instruction, it cleanses, it helps to purify my life. God's word is wisdom and guidance. By the way, Psalm, you'll notice a lot of these addresses. Psalm 119, it's, a, it's the longest uh, chapter of the Bible, but it is full of the benefits of God's word in my life. God's word strengthens us. God's word builds our faith. God's word gives life. Matthew 4, Jesus said, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word gives light and understanding. Man, there's sometimes that God's word just gives clarity. God's word gives peace to those who love it and do it. God's word has power in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's word is the key to eternal life. You cannot pass from spiritual death into eternal life without hearing the preaching of the word. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who has sent me have eternal life. What would it look like if this was the year that the domino of God's word was the thing we use used to start it all? What if you, like never before in your life, mating, spending time in this inspired word of God, made it a priority every day? <laughs> I wonder what John Wycliffe, like if he could come back today, first of all, he would think, wherever you people get your clothes is really bad, right? He see you walking around with your cell phone, like, what, what would he say if, if, if somebody said, no, 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 John, I've, I've got the version app right here. It's a Bible. It's a what? Like you showed him that, you know, very bad British. What's a Bible? What's a devotional? Who's Craig Grishel? What kind of name is that? Is he Slovakian? You know what I'm saying? Just imagine what John Wycliffe, because here's the deal. Because of the work of him and Luther and others down through the years, they devoted their life. Because they believe that every man, woman, and child should have access to the Word of God so they could read it, study it, and apply it for themselves. And we take that all for granted. We take it all for granted. The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing joint and marrow. Just lays us open and exposes our inner thoughts and desires. Let that be your dumb. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.